Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we are delighted to hear another personal story of eating disorder recovery. This one comes courtesy of Miranda Snyder, who is here to chat about her quasi-recovery, turning points in her recovery, COVID, and more. Miranda is a senior student in the Honors College at the University of Maine, where she's studying to be a high school ELA teacher. In the education profession, she aims to encourage students to use literacy skills to advocate for themselves and others as she believes that storytelling-based advocacy is extremely powerful, and we, of course, would agree. In past and current involvements in activist organizations and initiatives, Miranda's advocacy efforts emphasize the power of one's lived experience. Thank you so much for being here, Miranda. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity you provide for so many people to do this. Awesome. Well, we're, we're thrilled to do it and really excited to just kind of launch in. Yeah. Your, your bio is an excellent launching point. You know, the, the, the speaking of the richness and power of stories and lived experience, I know that your recovery experience, like so many uh, of us who have experienced eating disorders, is, is nuanced and complex and nonlinear. It's unfolded over time alongside of lots of other things in life, in terms of life experiences. So we'd love to try to capture some of that complexity here. So maybe first, you could set the stage by first telling us about telling us about your illness in the early days of recovery. Let's start there. Yeah, so I first was formally diagnosed with anorexia when I was in eighth grade, which was 2013, looking back. And essentially, it really followed kind of the quintessential early adolescent narrative you get, especially with a lot of young, white, cis, hetero females. So I distinctly remember at the tail end of summer, the first couple of days before starting eighth grade that school year, I decided to reinvent who I was and present myself in the most mature, granted for eighth grade maturity, the most mature way possible. And that meant figuring out what single outfit for show choir rehearsals every single week would look the most professional and a blue shirt would attract attention to me, but not be too much. It was like a light blue shirt that made my hair look good. That was it. And I, in those couple days before the start of eighth grade, I did like five face masks, which definitely didn't help my skin at all. And I had done a couple of at-home workout videos, just like, okay, I'm going to like enhance my appearance, not try to and change it, but just enhance it so I can be the best eighth grade version of me possible. And that really just accumulated and was really reinforced by at the looming end of eighth grade, there was an audition for the elite, like mixed gender high school show choir encore. And show choir had been my passion project for the two years I had been involved in it in junior high. And it was the first time I got a real sense of competition with my friends where we would literally all be lined up and compared against each other. So I think that really caused me to be like, okay, I'm not like quickest at picking up dances. I can sing well enough, but I'm not like the best in the group. So what other enhancements and modifications can I make to my appearance that will make me different, put me ahead? So again, that just kind of spiraled into selecting my outfits, like putting on the same very particular set of makeup each 
of rehearsal day in eighth grade. And eventually that spiraled into having like sauteed spinach leaves for dinner and measuring like gross fiber one cereal that really tasted like dog food into third cup measurements every morning. And like, again, just working out every day. So again, that was really where it spiraled in eighth grade. And fortunately in 2015, after my illness just progressing and progressing and taking over more of my life in eighth grade and getting to a point where to my parents and family and friends, it was very clear that something was wrong because I, again, had the typical experience that I had the privilege to have of me being in a thinner body already. When I lost a lot of weight, it was significant, which is not an experience that those in larger bodies oftentimes have, unfortunately. So my parents had completely against my own will enrolled me in a rehabilitation program. It was outpatient, maybe about an hour away, and I would leave school early, come into school late, have like four appointments a week with weigh-ins, a family therapist, regular things that felt like they were being put on to me to go through, and I did not have any say in it whatsoever. But eventually, it was hard. It sucked so much um, going through that. Because again, like I said, I did not feel like I had my own voice in it at all. Gradually, maybe about a year or so of enrollment in 2014, I started to turn around a little bit. And just from having their neural pathways rehashed and reestablished, I had enrolled at a summer camp for show choir, fortunately, in Ohio. And that experience, I remember talking to my mom being like, I didn't think about food. I knew I had to have a big breakfast because I would be dancing all day and like doing jazz hands every other second. So I had to be nourished so I could do that, obviously. Um, And that really was a turning point for me to be discharged from that program in 2015. However, even though I was discharged and I had show choir and performance and just high school to keep me busy, From intensely exercising at the same level I had, I still had the same food rules I had had before I started recovery in eighth grade and had never done any work myself to um, work around and really break in recovery. For instance, there was one really particular brand of bread, which looking back is not good. I hate that I subjected myself to eating this boring brand of bread. But I would only eat one certain type of bread, would feel a flutter in my chest and get really nervous if my mom accidentally bought another type. Fortunately, I had a lot of extracurriculars and schoolwork and boyfriends and things and just normal high school coincidences keeping me busy to distract me from that. So that was really my quasi-recovered state that I really was existing in for my whole entire life from around 2015 up until this summer in COVID, which we will get into in a little while. So I don't want to hearken on about that too much. But yeah, I feel like for any period more of me being in really intense, disordered, like harm to myself, I was more so engaged in this just quasi-recovered state where I figured this is as good as it's going to get. And I would be doing the best I could and still be achieving so well, but I would just always have an ED in the back of my mind. Interesting. So, so progress and yet at the same time, you're like, "Hmm, all right, here we go. This must just be it. And I got these rules and I got the stuff and away I go. Yeah. 
what made you realize that it was this state of quasi recovery and, and that maybe there was something still better? Take us to that turning point. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for steering us to that. So that really particular turning point happened during COVID. I was sent home from school like the Thursday before spring break was meant to start. So I was all packed for spring break. And then my roommate got the email from my university, our university, that school was shutting down. We were going home. So we just cried on her floor for a while. So I got home, was immediately struck with the stay at home order at home. So of course, the rituals and familiarity of working out, however, X many times a week, controlling what amount of foods, what kind of nutrients, micro, macro that I took, just reemerged in full swing because I was just looking and yearning for something to control because everything was like, what the heck? So yeah, that really launched intensely at that period. I had the most intense mental hunger that I was ever aware of. And that leads right into the particular turning point because I was in an online class session on Zoom with my camera off, microphone muted, as you do in online English classes. And I was just scrolling through, doing my usual routine that I had established for months at that point of looking through different recipes, whether they were like baking recipes, recipes of zoodles, which I've never even made zoodles in my life. I was like, maybe I'll try now. But I was just scrolling through recipe after recipe, and I was so sick of just having constant thoughts of food and making it worth it and making it count and factoring out what I ate with what activity I did and just feeling increasingly trapped in that. I just was like, you know what? I'm... I'm done. I'm worth so much more than this. I've reread over my journal entry for that day a few times, and I literally note that, like, I am worth so much more than a quasi recovered life. I was thinking about the fact that when I want to be a teacher, this is the most poignant example, but when I want to be a teacher and I'm working from like seven to three, underpaid, if I have kids, who, who knows? But if that happens, where would I find the time for that? And how would I continue to balance once I wanted out of life and that I knew I could accomplish with these parameters that I set up for myself? So that was my major wake up call. And I had had the thought and consideration all before, like in terms of starting my thesis at school and thinking about jobs and career. And I had a position at a organization in Denmark that the first thought when I was awarded it was how the heck am I going to work out during this and what am I going to need to do after it to lose whatever weight I possibly gained so that thought was always in my mind and I don't think there was anything particularly poignant about that conversation about contemporary literature during that English class that really struck me to consider this for myself but I just had that thought and I built up to that point and I texted my partner. I texted my very best friends, my roommate at school, who's across the hallway from me right now <laughs> included um, and told them like, I'm going to talk to Lynn, my mom and tell her like I'm entering, it's going to suck, but I'm going to do it. And I texted my mom and I told her like, I have to talk to you after this class. So I went to my room and she came in and I shut the door and I just told her everything that I'd been feeling. And I laid out 
from what I had learned from my first experience in eighth grade that like this needs to be on my own terms because I am 21 years old now. I'm more of an adult than I ever was then. I couldn't even comprehend what was going on then. I thought the color of my shirt would get me into show choir. That's not, that doesn't compute. But I just really emphasized that it needed to be on my own terms because I knew what needed to happen. I just needed to make that commitment for myself. And of course, her and my dad and my whole entire family was aware of that because they saw me go through the process, go through quasi recovery my whole life, say no to like pasta salad at family dinners throughout the whole eight or seven or nine, whatever years I was afflicted with it. And they knew what it was going to take, but I think they knew deep down and I knew as well that I was ready to start at that point. What an amazing English class that was that time. (laughs) That's fantastic. I mean, it's just so illustrative, I think, of how, like, a lot of people ask, you know, is there like some moment that, you know, you have to get to or some place you have to get to before you can really recover? And I think everybody's experience is different. And some people have a moment or a series of moments or a collection of moments or points along the way that are little, tiny or gigantic turning points. Your, your story really highlights that sort of an array of those. And in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> online class and, yeah. you know, yeah. on Zoom, taking your class, you know, looking at recipes and, and all of the rest that, I mean, it sounds like out of this whole COVID experience, it sort of afforded you a bit of an opportunity to kind of reckon with this so-called quasi-recovery. Mm-hmm. How does that, like the type or stage of recovery you're experiencing now, now that you've had that moment, that inflection, and, and turned a different direction, how does that compare to before? Before my first recovery experience, like I had briefly mentioned, I granted I was, I think I was 13. I think you're 13 in eighth grade. I was 13, did not want to do it, obviously entrenched in an eating disorder, was forced into it. I, I think my first ever doctor's appointment to even assess my vitals, anything was the day before. Show choir is coming up to so much of this, but the day before this full weekend, like two day show choir competition, that was my favorite competition of the year, which subsequently I had been eating less and less in preparation for that. So I could look as slim as possible for that two day competition because who knows what eighth grade boys would be looking at me in my blue shirt on stage doing jazz hands. So the timing of it just felt so rushed and no time of it ever would have felt good in eighth grade. But throughout the whole process, I was so rigid, just completely resistant any way I could. It really felt like I was just being input in the situation that I did not have any say over and I was just locked into it. And it felt like I was just switching from being hyper-controlled and feeling so much control around my life that I felt I had told myself that was effective into this thing that seemed to be only inflicting stress on me, on my relationships with my friends. And something at that point, which I really am grateful for, which is a helpful transition to my recovery most recently, was the intense support that I had from my family, my friends, my teachers at the time, even though I couldn't really fully appreciate it then. I had, for instance, one teacher 
Mrs. Plants, who she, I think she kind of tried to barter with the school nurse to have me eat my morning snacks required by my program with her. She had told me once I started program, I had had her for two years up to that point, that she could see that there was something going on, but she didn't want to push, didn't want to talk to me about it before I was ready, which felt really validating to hear that someone could understand that was what I was going through and what I was feeling and what I was thinking. And again, my parents and family were so supportive to even go through the hardship themselves of putting me in that, of going out if I needed this very specific type of whole wheat bread that sucked, going out to buy it, like getting the same exact subway order every single day after my week-long appointments. And again, my friends at the time, even though they were eighth graders and didn't know what was going on, just talking to me every single point they could. And my recovery this most recent summer, which when I enrolled at Walden this summer, that is Walden Behavioral Care, they had launched at the beginning of COVID virtual care program. So I had done my intake over Zoom with Stephanie, who was great. Thank you, Stephanie. I was approved for Walden's partial hospitalization virtual program, which I had lovingly called my eating school because it was 8.30 through 2.30 every single day. You have breakfast, lunchtime, snack time, and then your classes that I took notes during because I am a student at heart. I want to be a teacher and want to be in high school my whole life. So that made sense. But I willingly enrolled in my eating school. And while at my eating school, I had so many people reach out to me that I didn't even know one knew about my experience or two even would have felt comfortable reaching out to me about it. Like acquaintances, old friends from high school, I would tweet here and there like, banana bread's good. And they would respond like, yeah, it is good. And proud of you. You're doing great. And it felt really wonderful to have that support and also to have the support of my family, immediate extended family in a much different way than their support was expressed in eighth grade. It felt like they were supportive of me as an adult, as an individual taking this on versus just dragging me through this process because it would make their lives easier once I was all better. So that support was essential. And like I had voiced before, really everything about it was a complete 180 from eighth grade, both in terms of age and my maturity and me having dealt with this crap for so long and being able to see my immediate future and the great pressing things that I could be doing for it far beyond show choir. I, yeah, I was just very, very self-determined. Like I said, taking notes every single session of eating school. We used recovery record at Walden and every single time I logged something, my dietitian must have been so annoyed. She said she wasn't, but I still think she might have been because I left two paragraph long responses to every meal cataloging my thoughts before, during, after. I tried to get my cat in the picture whenever I could. Like my life was intensely recovery. And it was really great. It felt honestly quite freeing and thankfully gave me something to do during quarantine by making this intensive project like my MO that whole time that I was able to put my whole self into. 
in essence, it was just a complete 180 from eighth grade in terms of me being able to be so driven, put my fullest self into it, put the newfound connections and pride in myself and my accomplishments I've done from high school on into evaluating my worth before, after, and during recovery, which I just didn't have enough awareness of in eighth grade. There's so many elements of your story that I love. First of all, I love eating school. I just think that's so much fun. I'm a dietitian, at, you know, clinically trained from my clinical training. So I just love that little part of like, it is, it is so much about relearning how to do that thing with food. Right. So I, my little dietitian heart is happy about, about that, <laughs> but the, the more importantly, the thing that really struck me about your story is the sort of the intensity with which you put into determining which blue shirt was going to be the one for show choir is the intensity that you put into recovery yeah over and over and over minute after minute after minute and that that's just beautiful and i think illustrates i think it illustrates well how much it takes and how hard it can be and how much effort it takes and stacked up against somebody who might not know much about eating disorders who's like i don't get it why can't you just eat yeah really sort of illustrates the things that the brain is going through, the things that the, the, you know, the experience that the person's having. It's really hard work. And it sounds like an excellent student in that work. Yeah, thank you. And I just want to note in saying that too, and account for the privilege I have in being able to live at home in a safe environment with stable internet connection to even access eating school and my family's insurance policy that paid for it having the education and access to those materials, the family support, being a cishet woman. My cards were stacked for me to recover. Um, It was still a process. And like you said, still took so much effort. But I want to account for that and name that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, we really respect that. There are so many other barriers that could have been there. And there's so many barriers that are there for so many people that make that really hard work, all that much more difficult, challenging, inaccessible, burdensome in so many ways. So we certainly, as a, as a world, have a long way to go in making the kind of experience that you had really open to, to everybody who deserves to get the care that they need, which is everybody who has an eating disorder. So mm-hmm. I'm curious about one of the things that you talked about was sort of this you know, there's this maturity you have, this perspective on life, sort of seeing yourself where you want to be, kind of coming out of that. And it, you know, sometimes life provides us these opportunities to collect and take stock of where we are and think about the lives we want to lead and then recognize how the illness might be preventing us from doing that. And that can give sort of a, an added bit or large or small uh, bit of motivation. So that could be COVID, it could be pregnancy, it could be another life event, could be an, you know, an otherwise ordinary moment, like sitting in your lecture, mm-hmm. when we realize that there's something more important than all of the stuff that the eating disorder is insisting on telling us, and that we actually can seize that and, and sort of direct it towards the life we want to live, the life that's worth living for us. Yeah. What moments or experiences have played a part in your healing that are like that? Oof, good question. I think, honestly, one of the major things like I had touched on before was me thinking about in terms of, granted, I'm a student and in a very profession-based program because when you're a teacher you talk about what you're going to do in a classroom versus I'm not an environmental scientist I have a best friend who is but I'm assuming that you don't get as much 
here's what you're gonna do when you make a lesson plan of these specific students. So a lot of my coursework and only increasingly have been emphasizing my future and how I envision myself and what I literally envision myself doing day in and day out. So like I had said, just trying to figure out, I'm also very schedule oriented and very type A, which is pretty common given folks who experience this. So when I was even thinking about how I would schedule out these things, how would I factor in my eating disorder, which I weighed so heavily with all my other things in my life because going to the gym, however, X many times a week, controlling my intake, however many X times a week, seeing what meals I could skip because I was doing work for my thesis and other things that was granted productive. I really, through just my everyday habits that emboldened my eating disorder, was weighing it just as heavily as everything I could accomplish. So in terms of scheduling, using that as, I guess, a metaphor for this, I had to figure out how I could even schedule this thing that ate up my life, like as Christy Harrison, my idol, like most people in this field, one of many. It really was the life thief, and I had to account and assess where the life thief was taking up stock in the rest of my life, and not only in terms of future professional things, but my relationships too. Like something that was really, really paramount for me at Walden. I did a lot of journaling too. So if anyone of my Walden school alumni buddies or fellow past teachers would be listening to this, they'd be like, she's going to mention journaling and I'm going to mention journaling. I'm the journal girl. I'm going to be an English teacher. Um, I, a really paramount thing was writing one day in my little journal and reaffirming and writing it almost every single day was the fact that my worth is not related to my appearance in any way. Like the people whose connections with I love and admire most don't care about what I look like. Even if I feel like I'm enhancing, not if I feel like, but even if my eating disorder were to tell me that my worth to them and my connection with them would be enhanced by my modification, then that's just inherently not the truth. Like taking the most, I don't know, crazy example, my thesis advisor didn't sign on to be my advisor because I was a skinny mini. Like that's not, no. So that it took a lot of reaffirmation work about my worth, about what I saw my worth leading me to do, what the stake of my worth was in my relationships what I meant to people for them to even come out of the woodwork and support me was really, really essential for me in my recovery. Yeah, it does speak to the sort of richness of, of recognizing the depth of who we are, right, and what we have to offer. And, and I imagine in your future teaching career, you are never going to stand in front of your classroom and say, I'm going to treat you, student XYZ, a certain way because of how you look, right? You wouldn't do yeah. that. And yet the eating sort of tends to you know, try to get us to think that. Mm -hmm. So seeing that is really a beautiful moment. It's like, oh, actually, maybe there are other things. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. Yeah. What is important to you now? What are the things that hold your energy? What are the things that occupy your time? Because you, you know, have some, some space in your brain for things other than the eating disorder stuff. What is that now? I, yeah, the space I have is so wonderful. Oh my God. I 
I have space to fully really engage with my coursework with education times social justice based research that I'm executing, be able to do things like this and really feel like my advocacy efforts are truthful and not just speaking to one successful part of my story and then just pretending that the eating disorder part isn't there or is functional in some way. Um, I'm better able to make connections with people, do things on the fly and be spontaneous, which is a trait I've always loved about myself, but has gradually been tinkered and scratched away by the eating disorder. So I'm leaning more into that now, more exploration, more creativity, more general enjoyment in things, whether it's academic or professional or just day-to-day things like being able to take a night off from work and watch, this is just on my mind. I watched the boys in the band last night, which is great. But being able to engage in actual meaningful self-care that I said, like my advocacy, is actually truthful. And overall, just engage in projects, like like I said, that are truthful and genuine and authentic to myself versus doing things out of any sense of obligation or comparison to anyone else. And having the true, like you said, mental space to do that in a meaningful, like best effort made way. Absolutely. You know, we know you have a cool event coming up tonight. I'm thinking about, you know, I want, want you to say a little bit about it, but I also wanted, want you to think a little bit about like going into this cool event, you're bringing in a, a whole other perspective of you, right? To this. Yeah. And so much more presence to this experience. So tell us a little bit about tonight and also just reflecting on how, how will you walk in there tonight versus how it would have been before when the eating disorder was uh, taking a lot of your time? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, so for context, the event that's happening tonight is Take Back the Night, which on the University of Maine campus, like almost every other college campus in America, is the standard event that happens in October because it is the month of awareness of sexual assault. Our Take Back the Night consists of a few guest speakers of community resources, services on campus, general raising awareness of the issue, and intersectional identities that are affected by it. And then we have a survivor speak out that is completely non-mandatory reporting. Um, Folks come up, share their experience about sexual abuse, assault, anything of the sort. Even if you are just an ally or a supporter of something, you're still welcome to speak as long as your words are not actively hurting anyone and hurting any survivor, any survivor's message, you are welcome to speak. And then after that speak out, we reconvene a little bit. There are some fidgets. We're going to have dogs this year at this event, so people can pet the dogs. And then we have a candlelit march around campus in which we take back the night and take it back as ours, as survivors and as whole people who don't need to walk in fear during the, the darkened time of the day. So freshman year, when I had attended Take Back the Night, I was just a little tiny freshman. I knew I was a feminist. I started my feminist club in high school and I was like, this sounds good. So I went to that. I decided to share my experience with and trigger warning, I say the word grape because it's a more helpful way of discussing it. I might even do it tonight because it's habit at this point because the actual word can be abrasive, but maybe you just think of a little purple fruit instead. So I spoke about my experience with grape at that event for the first time, not even realizing it, and the amazing 
support and community I felt at that event. Again, not even planning to experience that or share that openly to a group of folks was really, really powerful and really started to show me the power of using one story, one's voice for advocacy and education, because no one can deny your lived experience. Your lived experience is your own, and however you interpret it is your own. And at the same note, if you don't decide to use it for advocacy, that is completely fine too. It is your experience. So at that event, it was very, very powerful freshman year, and it's been powerful every year since. Last year was my first year ever completely hosting and organizing the event on my own. And I distinctly remember, even though that event, I knew the worth of it. I was so intensely fixated on making it as successful as possible and really motivated to have it be as powerful as it was for me in the past for every attendee there. I had gotten a carton of Halo Top and I was like, I deserve this after this event. And then I ate the whole carton afterwards. And Halo Top is just gross anyways. But still, even in that moment, I was fixated around food and I knew the next morning that I would be going to the gym and it would be such a big event and such a powerful event that I was so proud of doing. But still, literally the day before, the day after, even directly after, my mind was still laden with my eating disorder and those restrictions. So I still was not able to fully engage in and appreciate this event for the meaningful thing it was and is. And in the it is current moment for tonight's event, I had said before I started that really, I haven't done that much intense planning. I let it last year. I'll be fine. Um, And I have a really wonderful cohort of folks helping me put this on. But I, I just feel so much more confident and genuinely excited and happy for this event. Because I know I will be able to be, like you said, fully present and fully aware of the power that's having over people. I won't have thoughts about my halo top in the back of my mind for the whole latter half of the event. I will be there. I will be present and in sharing my own experience. Last year, even in my planning of how I would share my experience, I had it written down and I read it exactly from the way I had written down. And that is a really, really helpful tool that some folks, even if it's their first or like hundredth time sharing their story, no matter what content it is, it's so helpful and so powerful for them and power to them. But I think this year for this event and this iteration of me sharing my story, I'm just going to get up there, say whatever the heck I want. And be done with it and be satisfied. And I think this is my last little piece on this, but I really think that reorientation around just not being hypercritical and hyper aware of how I present myself, of how I'm going to tell my story at this event tonight is another way in me relinquishing power from the eating disorder. And I, like, I recognize that it's a really powerful night, but no matter how I share my story, it's going to be fine. And I have faith in myself and I know my worth in sharing the story. And I know that I can do it well, even if I don't have it written out in cards and don't have Halo Top, which is not even a reward, but to reward myself in air quotes afterwards with. That's fantastic. Right. So many people's stories share on a, I'll sort of come to back to a serious note, but on a lighter note, like share the halo top kind of food. Like, yeah, 
reward really like yeah no what the brain is like this is this fluffy nothingness is a reward <laughs> yeah it's not no right but interestingly the eating sort of gets you know it's really pretty convincing in that in that way uh but but on the much more serious side i think you really like you really powerfully highlight the the you know we keep being reminded of this again and again and again on this podcast that the power of sharing our stories is so important for us sharing them and for people hearing them, right? Because every time you share your story, you're sharing a piece of you, you're putting a piece of you out into the world that can brighten the world, that can really help somebody connect to and know that they're not alone. And that's the beauty of sharing this story. And then for our own experience of being able to be connected to this broader world and know that we might be able to have some sort of influence. So I'm I'm curious what you would tell someone listening to this story right now, who relates to it and says, oh yeah, that could have been my story or, or has a story of their own that, that maybe they'd like to tell, but they're kind of struggling to do so. What would you say to them? Definitely. So first off, I, to reflect back on my anecdote I had shared about my first time ever attending Take Back the Night when I was just a little measly freshman at UMaine, I didn't know I was going to share my story, but I knew that the event personally connected to me and that I just wanted to show my support. I didn't even know if I was going to stay the full time. I just showed up. So finding a community outlet first, I think is very essential. Not even if you're planning on telling your story or relating your experience or really thinking about it at that point at that event or in that community. Just knowing and seeing other people do that same thing can really start to unlock the possibility for you to do that for yourself in your own mind. And then maybe once you start to feel comfortable about sharing your own story, even start sharing it with friends and those you feel comfortable with first. And it doesn't have to be a whole memoir or insightful timeline of how you think this thing started, where you think it all stems from, and everything like that and all the steps along the way and all the gore you may have inflicted upon yourself along the way but even in little anecdotes and comments like my um really good friends were always aware of my eating disorder even when I was quasi recovered and believed in anti-diet culture messages and preached it to them but still could not internalize that for myself they were aware and their awareness i think was a big hurdle that allowed me to one enter at walden to fully recover and three be able to look for these resources now to share my story and hopefully advocate and educate and encourage others to do the same and finally i'd suggest trying to figure out what even parts of your story in what modes however much you want to dive into them feels most natural and authentic for you and just experiment with that. Like I had mentioned, I didn't know if after graduating from eating school at Walden this summer, if in the last month and a half maybe I had of summer that I wanted to write a memoir about my experience, which would have been a lot looking back. That was not the right choice. So I didn't make that choice. But I still experimented with different modes of telling my story. And this, me being on this podcast is an act of experimentation. Everything is off the cuff. I don't, I didn't plan out what was going to come out first. Kind of like my experience of Take Back the Night. You have to experiment and see what modes feel most genuine and feel most powerful to yourself. 
And that can be in journaling, in art, in anything, in discussion with other folks, even in reading about this topic or about related ones. It really takes a lot of experimentation, location of where you can do it, seeing other folks do similar things, and hopefully feeling that you have a sense of support, whether it's from friends, family, or an online support system through like anti-diet culture, fat activism, anti-healthism pages is really, really essential. Absolutely. So one last question for you. You know, Elizabeth Quasi recovery in minutes ago, you said full recovery. So I often, you know, we'll talk to people who are like, oh, no, 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 I don't think it's, you know, I don't think recovery is going to work for me or people who are listening to a recovery story. And they're like, yeah, that's great for you. Super. I'm so excited for you. That's terrific, Miranda, but that's never going to be me. What are you saying to that person right now that's thinking that's not going to be for me? Maybe it's for other people, but it's not for me. Full recovery is not for me. What are you going to tell them? All I can say is that I was the exact same way, which is what 90% of people say. So I know that person, person, I'm saying this to you, you're listening to a recovery podcast. You're thinking about this way. It's hopefully going to click in soon, hopefully. And if it clicks in like in 10 minutes and 10 years, that's fine. It'll hopefully click in soon. And I'm proud of you for when it does. But I thought the exact same thing. I literally assumed that my entire life I would be scared of non-whole grain bread. I'd be counting the sugar grams on the back of my wedding cake. Wedding cake doesn't come in a box that would have sugar grams, but you know what, birthday cake. And I would assume that I would be stuck this way forever. I just, when I was nutritionally rehabilitated after leaving my program in eighth grade, I had gotten my period back and all that other stuff, which was fine and dandy. but. I just hadn't done that conscious rewiring, which really I think only takes your personal full commitment, however much that can be, to the process. So I just assumed like, nope, this is as good as it's going to get. And I recognize the harm that I have done in saying that to people and admitting that to myself and just saying that was my truth at that time of saying, you know, like, other people can recover. But for me, from my experience, it's just not, it's just not a thing. This is just the way I am. I need to go to the gym this many times a week. I need to monitor what I need. I need those two to be in a relationship together. So I do recognize the harm that I did in promoting that and normalizing that. But that was really what I believed at the time of what I believed my worth was. And like we've touched on all over this timeline and all over this discussion, It really took me realizing my worth and is the rest of my life worth and all the things I want to do worth balancing with this like leech of my life. Beautifully said. (laughs) Miranda, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your story. It is invaluable and you're absolutely right. People will listen to this and think maybe that's maybe that's not, but you know what? You just told them it can be you and that's, a beautiful thing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.